And I'm going to uh, head out on a quote from George, as played by Jimmy Stewart, uh, in It's a Wonderful Life. No. Uh, it's a really bad impression on top of that. Uh, you're, you're, you're thinking that this is all wrong. It's as if I had the money back in the safe. Uh, the money's not here. Your money's in Joe's house, uh, right next to yours, and in the Kennedy house, and Mrs. Macklin's house, and a hundred others. Why, you're lending them money to build. And then, I'm not going to quote anymore. You get it. This is something that goes back throughout history. <laughs> Once more under the breach, dear friends. Else fill up the wall with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Together, Am I we, on the right mic? Uh, I think you are now. Uh, for Good, a okay. minute during the, uh, the intro, uh, I was hearing everything that your hands did and nothing that your mouth did. Oh, well, it's because I was using sign language. Right. So, uh... Audible sign language. Right. Snap it. Yeah. All right. All right. So this is the personal wealth coach. Uh, there are two of us in this program and then you. However many of you there are out there. At least none at the very least. <clears throat> yes, it's true. Uh, we are both bald. We are both going to be talking about the economy, about why banks fail and how to avoid bank failures, how to make huge amounts of money in the market. Um, like What? Yeah, yeah. We can talk about how Will Rogers said to do that. Uh, Start off with a large fortune, invest it. Well, this is how to make a small fortune in the market. Yeah, you start off with oh. a large fortune. Right. That is, right. There that, you go. Uh, no, it is also possible to maintain a large fortune, but you got to do it right. All right. So, and also Will Rogers, um, buy a stock. When it goes up, sell it. If it doesn't go up, don't buy it in the first place. Well, people have done that. Yeah, it's just called fraud. <laughs> With options. Yeah, they, they, they figured out how to, since oh, they're options. running their own company's options, what they did is they uh, arranged for themselves to buy the stock retroactively when it was lower than it was when they sold it. Wouldn't that be nice? Yes. It's like if, if the blackjack dealer told you what the cards were going to be. Man, lovely. So this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we're going to talk about lots of strange th things today. We've had a lot of questions to us about the bank failure of uh, S, uh, the, the uh, Silicon Valley Bank, SVB. Uh, we've also uh, got other stuff to talk about, lots of good stuff to talk about. But before we do that, we have to tell you all the disclosures. We are bald. We are bearded. Uh, our firm, The Personal Wealth Coach, is also the name of this program. And it, the firm is registered with the SEC to give fiduciary investment advice. Now, does that mean that the SEC somehow favors our firm? No. In fact, if anything, it's brought our firm to their attention, um, which may not be what you want in a governmental re regulatory situation. But we like that they do what they do, and we like that they're curmudgeons, and we go, they go around with a big smick stick and smack people for taking other people's money. That doesn't mean that they're going to like us. We like them. It's a different thing. Okay, so uh, is there a little bit over power sometimes? Maybe, but that's not up to us. All right, we, just because we're registered with them to give investment advice and fiduciary goodness, we can't do that on the air, though. That doesn't mean we can do that here. 
we can't. There's privacy issues. We don't know all of you or none of you. If there's none of you listening, then all of you would be none of you. How's that for opposing infinite um, mathematics? Mm -hmm. All or nothing is sometimes nothing. Uh, let's see. So those are those are the big ones. So you want to give the the deeming? You want to get your deem on or your demon? The information that we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Very nice. Uh, we do give full warranty that all information that we do not give was not given by us. Thank you. I want to make that very mm. clear to everyone present or not present. Please raise your hand if you're not. Thank you. Um, the last thing is we do not pay for this radio program. We are not paying the studio to be here. They are not paying us to be here. It is a mutual, uh, I don't know, is it communist when that happens? I don't know. They're making money on it. Um, we do pay for advertising on the station for the radio program at, at the going rate for advertisement as they do as well, though. I don't think they pay themselves for it. I think they give themselves some kind of a discount. I don't, I don't know why. Just, just a thought. Fantastic. Okay. Well, we have, you know, the failure of SVB and Silvergate are 80% of our questions. Um, we've got Inquisitor John, who is our, most faithful and loyal questioner. He questions us on everything. Uh, thank you for questioning us. Uh, Inquisitor John has his first question. He's got several, and we've got several others out there on top of that. Um, the subject of his email is federal stress test, uh, and then obviously referring to Silicon Valley Bank, SVB. As the 16th largest bank in the U.S., I thought the required stress testing was supposed to keep this from happening. So it's not really a, he has a question mark on the end of that. Like, but that's the question. What, what happened here? Why is it that the stress test, this is a big bank. They have lots of billions of dollars in deposits. And uh, aren't we all supposed to be aware of what's happening at the banks since the financial crisis and all that good stuff? And you have told me that you are loaded for bear on the subject. You have dug deep. Uh, I have a lot of very, I have some details, but mostly just from articles and then a lot of background academically as to how this happens. So I'll be probably more generalized on the subject, maybe historically, and you can zoom in to the oh, nuts okay. and bolts, the brass tacks. I, I can answer the stress test question first, and then I'll summarize what happened at SVP. The stress test that's being done on the banks, test them against a situation where there is a major financial collapse somewhere. For example, the euro collapses uh, because the European Monetary Union breaks up or something. And in that kind of stress, interest rates fall. So anytime we get a major economic disaster someplace, interest rates tend to fall. And as a result, that's the kind of test. That's what happened in, in 2008, 2009 is, is we had some collapses and interest rates fell and people couldn't pay their loans. And a whole series of things went with that. Well, none of that happened with SVB. What happened with SVB was really fairly simple. They have a bank that is proud of its technological base and the, and the base where it is in the Silicon Valley. And they opened it up. It was a really good idea to open it up because there were a tremendous number of people in startup tech companies over the past 
years, several years, 10 years, that had a lot of money because they did a, an IPO and they sold their company and they received tremendous amounts of cash and they needed someplace to park it. You got your hand up. Yeah, I'm just going to throw in a detail here to, to, to back this up. According to the FDIC, 90% of the deposits as of the end of the year at SVP, SVB were uninsured. That means they were above the $250,000, mm-hmm. 90% of their deposits. So that's who their customers are. Go ahead. One, one of the things that SVP was, SVB was doing was advertising insured savings. And yeah, they, they are insured by the FDIC. But if you read the fine print at the bottom, they're insured up to $250,000 per account. But that was their big drumbeat. We're right. safe. We're secure. And, and let's just say that you, you should look that up specifically when it comes to joint accounts. It's different and all that stuff. So don't just say it's all insured. This is what messed up SVP out there. So do your research on what FDIC covers. Go ahead. Okay. So SVP became the go-to bank socially and every other way for another reasons besides the fact that they were saying, we're in Silicon Valley, you're in Silicon Valley, so come give us your money. Right. Rather than loaning money, they were having a tremendous inflow of deposits. Well, let me explain what a deposit is when it goes to the bank. You're thinking, I deposited money at the bank. No, you loaned money to the bank. And the bank is paying you an interest rate on the loan that you made to the bank. SVB, SVB was paying typically around 1%. Now, if you recall a year or so ago, when SVB was hitting its peak deposits, if you could squeeze half a percent out of the bank, you were real proud of yourself. 1%? Half a percent a year. That's the lottery winning right there. And they were paying one and sometimes as much as 2% on certificates of deposit, on time deposits and so on, huge deposits. And nobody else was paying them, which is, by the way, a big red flag on yeah, the bank. Yeah, anytime How you they see that, that happening. Well, you see, banks nor- historically, normally, banks make loans to people and businesses, and they charge them an interest rate so that higher than they're paying on their deposits. And that's how banks make money. But when they make a loan to you or me or a business or whatever, they have to set aside a reserve amount of money where they're not making any money to, to cover the prob- the possibility that that loan will go bad and the people won't pay their debts. That's normal banking procedure. SVB in this effectively zero interest environment that we've been in for, for several years before this year, simply bought long-term treasuries where they could get 3%. So if I'm loaning money to the federal government at 3% and I'm paying you one and a half, for example, you're thrilled with your one and a half because the other banks are only paying about a half a percent. I'm, I have a, I have a 1.5% profit and I don't have to set any reserves aside because the federal government is not going to default on the money that they borrowed from me. The problem with that is when interest rates change and you go to sell the bond, that's the long-term bond, it hurts. Yeah. So, Well, what happened next was about three things. First, as interest rates started to rise, the tech companies, as I mentioned during the market summary, the tech companies who were surviving on near zero interest rate loans that they were rolling over every 30 days or so, suddenly stopped making money in cases where they had been making money and they still had expenses and they still wanted to stay in business. So this huge amount of money that they had dumped into SVB Bank is there and they started making withdrawals. Well, that's perfectly normal behavior. So as interest rates rose, 
And these startup tech companies in Silicon Valley do it worse and worse. They started withdrawing more and more money. So they're withdrawing money, which is what people do when they need their money and they have it in the bank. So they're taking the money out of the bank. Well, SVB now has to find cash to pay these people. Where are they, where are they, how are they going to get cash when they've got to invest in long-term runs? They sell the bonds. Well, if you have been following what we've been saying and writing for some time, the long-term uh, Morningstar's, for instance, long-term bond index and, and Bloomberg's long-term bond index right now are down about 20% from last year. That means if they had $1,000 they had loaned to the United States government, saying this is very rough and it isn't exact, but it's, it's, it's a good concept that you, you'll understand. And they sold that $1,000 bond that's been paying them 3% interest. They only got back, let's say, $800. Meanwhile, the uh, laws that were passed following the financial collapse of 2008 and 2009 did something interesting. It requires that they mark their loans to the market. Well, since a treasury bond is a loan to the federal government, it has to be marked to the market. And once a month, they come out with this balance sheet that says, guess what? The, the money we have loaned out is now worth less than when we loaned it. Even though it's and, loaned to the federal government, and if it's right. held to maturity, nobody doubts that the government's going to pay that. And so these balance sheets started coming out indicating that their, their underlying value of what they held was dropping. And people are pulling money out of the bank. And then the death knell came. And Jake, you said it was Peter Thiel. I presume there were other people, too, who yeah, started. A lot of venture, started, who, venture capitalists. Who looked at this and said, golly bum, folks, all my friends, I'm going to tell you, get your money out of that bank because its, its underlying assets are falling. And so people started taking money out of the bank. And of course, the more money they took out of the bank, the more treasuries SVB had to sell. And the more they sold, the greater their losses were, and they kept reporting them. And then there was a run on the bank, quite literally with people standing outside, taking their money out of the bank. And uh, SVB had to shut the doors and the FDIC had to step in and take it. And it's there's a lot of beer crying in beer going to be going on now because people didn't read, didn't conceive, didn't think about the fact that if the bank fails, FDIC covers some deposits up to a certain amount. So I'm going to be very vague here so that you'll read the fine print when you put money in a bank. And a tremendous amount of that money was anything but insured. And anything but secure. As a matter of fact, the tremendous amount of money Jake just used, I didn't see the 90% number, but apparently about 90% of their deposits were in a position where literally they were as, liter as safe as the bank. And the bank is a stock company. It is the equivalent of putting all your fortune in a single stock. How secure is that? I don't care if it's bank stock or anything else. And the end result is now uh, that money is not available to them which is going to put a huge crunch. You're going to see secondary. We've already started to see the secondary effects of SVB going under as a one of the stable coins broke the dollar. Um, you're going to see more because these companies that were depending on that money being there to draw out, to keep operating because they're losing money, don't have the money available to draw out. What, what happens next? I can go into that if you'd like, but you probably have some things you want to say. Well, let me kind of take it from a big picture perspective historical it and this is this is something that is really 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 fundamental to your understanding of banks let's go back 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 uh, playing the the um heart music would be appropriate here i'd have to find it to play it let me see if i can 
back in time we go um, to when banks are getting their names. Uh, this is the mid-1600s. Why are they called banks? Well, they're called banks because in English, most of the banks in London were on the banks of the Thames River. Yes, they weren't called banks yet. They were jewelry stores. And uh, you would put your candlesticks and your necklaces and your uh, silverware, which was really where you also acquired your wealth because no one was paying interest at that point. That was usury. It was a really horrible sin. Um, so where did you put your stuff to keep it safe? Well, you went to the jewelry store who had guards and they dug a bunch of holes in the bank because it was easy to dig there and filled them up with, with rock walls. So the bank's full of now these, this metal, all this metal, and it's got little tags on them that say this belongs to the Jones family, or this is usually with a ribbon and a piece of paper. Well, there was a horrible, horrible fire in 1666. And yes, there were all kinds of religious meanings at the time and prophecies and so on. And it was foretelling the end of the planet because of the year and all of that. Well, London basically burned down. And this is also, I've told you where we get the word bank. Now we're going to get another one that we use more widely even than the word bank. And that's confusion. To fuse metal together is to take iron and iron and weld it in place. You fuse it together, it welds to itself. Confusion is when you take alloys that don't generally mix and you fuse them together. They don't fuse, so you have to weld them with something else. That's confused. When the fire hit London, huge numbers of banks burned down and the vaults got hot enough that all the metal melted together. And it was called the Great Confusion. Talk about a, a, a financial collapse. Not only was it not insured, nobody knew which part of what puddle of metal belonged to whom. Could I throw another word in there since you're doing sure. words? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You said collapse. Yes. <laughs> SVB Bank just lapsed. That's correct. When the stablecoin company that broke the dollar and probably going to have a run on its deposits now lapses, that will be a collapse. Right. And if we look at Silvergate Bank, which failed two days before SVB, but a much smaller bank, one in which SVB had a lot of don't debt to them. Um, so uh, SVB had loans to Silvergate. Silvergate just collapsed. And then, well, it, it lapsed. <laughs> now SVB right. has collapsed. So confusion came because nobody knew who owned what. Except, and this is interesting, there were a few jewelry stores that at the time had just switched to calling themselves vaults or banks. And they were keeping record of the weight and the purity of the alloy in books. And they were able to get the books out. And they used this really new technology in England at the time. The Medici family had been doing it for about 200 years called double entry bookkeeping. And they knew who owned what at the banks. So when they came back, they were able to set up banking regulations on who made it through the collapse and the confusion. And that banking regulation subsists to this day. And you'll like the person who came up with it, Sir Isaac Newton, who, if he were alive today, would get the Nobel Prize in medicine, chemistry, physics, and economics. <laughs> Not to mention math. <laughs> yes, and math. Well, he had to define physics and math so that the rest of us could give awards in it. So yeah. that the concept of confusion and collapse, there is no way that you can have a bank that's profitable. Any bank that is profitable 
There's no way that they can survive if a large portion of their creditors, if their depositors, if you will, come and collect their money because they've loaned out some of the money. That's how they stay profitable. And the Federal Reserve sets this requirement based on the great confusion of 1666 that says you have to have a certain amount of reserves set aside just in case the bank melts. And bankrupt used to mean where the bank broke and the river flew, flowed into the, uh, into the city, but it meant that the river actually broke into the vault and the gold all got swept downstream. Right. So bankruptcy is more than what we call it. And when the bank goes bankrupt, it literally means their vault got broken. Because yeah, the yeah, balances right. were, were right. And now back to you. That was the If, if the bank erupts, then the money is lost. <laughs> yes, right. exactly. So back to you. Now that we've filled in a bunch of words that we use all the time and most people don't know where they came from, this is easier to understand. Well, the collapse will continue. We will see other things, what sometimes referred to by the English as knock-on events right. from this. But the I guess the important thing to remember at this point, first off, let me let me say something positive. The rest of the banking system in the United States was not doing what SVB is doing. They're doing it some. They have some treasury securities on their books, and they are taking some hits from that. But SVB was by far, had by far the largest percentage of their money in treasuries, which, by the way, according to the regulators and everybody else, was perfectly secure. And if you read any of the financial stuff that comes out, popular financial stuff, they're still beating the drum saying bonds, treasury bonds are secure, you buy treasury bonds, you don't, you can't lose money, which is false. You can lose money in treasury securities. Uh, not that they're going to default. I don't, I, the probability of default is zero. You can lose money in a bank account. Why can you, how can you lose money in a bank account? Well, if it's not FDIC insured, you're going to lose some money and you need to do your homework there. Here's here is the issue though. We need to we need to do our homework. If somebody says this money is guaranteed, this money is insured, we are an agent, we are a, something that insures or we have safe place for your money. You need if you need to read the fine print. You need to be aware when you put large amounts of money anywhere, particularly when they offer guarantees or promises or whatever, that something is going on internally where they think they can make more money than they're paying you. And you need to understand what they're doing so that when it stops, you will recognize that it stops. And if you lock it up, and then fortunately, a lot of places are locking your money up saying you can't get it back. And if we fail too bad, you won't get any money or you may not get any money. And you don't even realize that that's going on. That is so important once you get past FDIC insurance levels uh, or, or, or a series of other insurance levels of different other organizations that are backed by the federal government. Go ahead. Now, this this is kind of what we've been focusing on from is the historical perspective and then you more directly how a individual out there, how our listeners can do some due diligence to look at what's going on here. Now, the last piece of that, I would say, is what did the regulators do wrong? And there's a great, great article in the Wall Street Journal, and there is a quote from Eric Rosengren. And those of you that listen to our program in the global financial collapse heard us quote him extensively. He was the head of the, uh, he was the head regulator, the top bank regulator 
of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston uh, all leading up to the global financial collapse. And then he was appointed president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston from 2007 to 2021. Why? I mean, the global financial collapse is happening and they took this regulator who's the one that's supposed to be spotting all this stuff and put him in charge. Well, because he did spot it all. And there's all kinds of stuff that he wrote to the Federal Reserve at that point saying, hey, we need to do these things that we're not doing. And we're doing them now. So he, his statement, his quote here has a lot of weight. What he says very specifically, and this is purely to the regulators, is that they should have known their portfolio was heavily weighted toward venture capital. What does that mean? The number of companies that had their deposits at that bank that were venture capital was astronomically large. There was a lot of money from one niche segment. Usually the Federal Reserve is really good at watching those niches and saying, hey, you've got you to diversify your depositors a little. Um, they should have known that their portfolio was weighted toward venture capital and venture capital firms don't want to be taking risks with their deposits. So there was a good chance that if venture capital companies started pulling out funds, they'd do it in mass. And it doesn't matter, even if SVB had been doing everything right, if venture capital all left at once, they still would have gone down. And that's the tough part here. Let's back the train up just a little bit to 1991. Okay. For many of our listeners, 1991 is about the time that the dinosaurs were walking the earth or something, but it really isn't. There was something called the savings and loan crisis in that time frame. And there were howls and complaints. Again, we went through another crisis in 2008, 2008 and 2009. People are a little more familiar with it. Why did the savings and loan crisis occur? And it parallels what Jake just said. Yeah. Savings and loan ins institutions were focused in one sector of the economy, mortgages. And when we got into a mortgage crunch, we got into a real estate crunch, they started dropping like flies. And new laws were passed and a lot of things were changed and the savings and loans were merged into something else. And we, we, got, we went through it and we developed a special place to park all those bad real estate investments and gradually sell them over time. And the Resolution Trust Corporation gradually sold them over time and made money. And it was it worked out well because we got a good system in the United States. All you have to do is go from 1991 to 2008 and watch it happen again in a different place for the same reasons. Why were people flocking to the savings and loans in 1991? Because they were offering a higher interest rate than the traditional banks. They were offering a higher interest rate because they were taking greater risk. And the system the regulatory system did not have a methodology of recognizing that risk because the last time this had happened was long enough ago that everybody forgot about it. Fast forward to 2008, 2009, the banks were the the banks were selling mortgages and they were buying mortgage bonds and we did the same thing again. Well, fast forward to 2023, what are we the, the question we have to look at is what are we doing now where we assume something won't fail, but it's a bad assumption that is going to cause financial institutions to fail. That will cause your, if you have money in those financial institutions locked up, could cause you to lose a lot of it. That's the question that you always have to be asking. And we ask so frequently, it's scary. You brought this up about people comparing Chinese GDP to ours and saying if it's similar, it's similar. This is a, this is a, 
uh, we've talked about it in the past, but it's worth bringing up again. It's called PPP or purchasing price parity. And from purely economics, it sounded really cool when it was first introduced in the late 90s and really got popular in the early 2000s. And you can see it still in a lot of the popular press. And often you can tell when that person went to school because of it. PPP was something really popular in the early 2000s in economics 101 stuff. The problem is that it's been pretty thoroughly debunked on a bigger level because a house in China, that when we say they have the same standard of living, the issue there is that they don't have the same building codes and they don't have the same electrical codes and they don't have the same, you go down the list of safety measures that cost money, but they actually have a value for the money that you're paying. You know, things like having special walls in your house that prevent fire from going beyond a certain speed. Um, these are things that cost extra. Having smoke detectors and exit doors that function in fires. This is not something that is universal in China at all. In fact, the plumbing system that they have and the building system that they have and the electrical system that they have basically go down through every utility and every standard for quality for automobiles and so on. And you find that the standards are far, far lower in the background. And it's really hard to measure that. But the reality is you cannot have parity from one place to another. Uh, you have differences from one place to another. So you, San Francisco, somebody living in a high rise in San Francisco, living, eating every meal and paying all their bills, but just paying all their bills is not living in the same standard as somebody living in a bayou paying all their bills in Louisiana. Uh, and that's within the same country. So that, that's all I wanted to say. Academic, academically, it's been pretty thoroughly debunked and the only major institution that's still holding on to it is the international monetary fund um and that tells you something in itself and you have more to say i can tell by the way you are looking um, well i've always got more to say but i don't want to <laughs> i've i've had a lot to say during this thing yeah i i mean i just spent it's some time on ppp and if, if people don't fall over asleep from price parity and purchasing price parity, then I don't know what uh, insomnia cure could work for you. Well, I got a email during the, during the show that said 34, we, we, we said that 62% of the workforce is now in uh, of the eligible people are now in the workforce. And I got a said, that means that, uh, that means that there are 38% of the people who are eligible to be working and they're not working. And the inference was that the government subsidies are keeping them from working. No, this is, this is the, yeah. That, let's, why don't you jump into that one? There's a lot to well, say on that subject. First off, the person who wrote me this is he and his wife are retired military and they dropped out of the workforce at about 50 and haven't worked since. That's part of the measurement here. If you're retired They're, from a career and you could still go back to work, you're part of the workforce. Yeah. They are living quite nicely on government subsidies. So he's saying that it's terrible, these government subsidies, and he gets really upset when he sees well, somebody at the store using a card to buy food. Uh, subsidy means um, it, it means able to survive on, uh, or it means... Uh, uh, contributed 
And if you earned the contribution, it's different than if you didn't. So a lot of people put the whole blanket, the government is paying subsidies, but Social Security is one of those subsidies, and so is the military retirement. It does allow people not to work, but they're the ones that paid into it to begin with. Uh, yeah, uh, that that number you well, quoted. That, let, go ahead. I, I wanted to, to say how I responded to him, and I think this is important to understand. First off, yeah, there were there's a there's there are a couple of million people, about two point seven five million people, who probably are now, according to the studies from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce who probably would be working were it not for government subsidies. Well, let me explain who most of those people are, though. In order to get those government subsidies, if you're in an age bracket and you're not disabled or you could be in the workforce, you almost have to have young children at home. If the reason this money is given to those people is so that they can feed their young children. This is important to understand. There have been a host of studies where we go back and look at what happened before the government provided food for low-income families with children. And one of the reasons the crime rate today, one of the prime reasons the crime rate today, the violent crime rate in the United States is roughly half of what it was back then. I know the media wouldn't make a big noise about that, but it is. It's literally about half of, per, per million people, the number of violent crimes is roughly half of what it was in the 50s. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, there were some studies that went into prisons and looked at violent criminals and measured, the, they volunteered for this, obviously, and took a hard look at their brain, and they discovered that almost universally, they have a much smaller prefrontal cortex than the average person. The prefrontal cortex is where we recognize the long-term effects of something we're doing right. And they also started, did other medical tests and they discovered almost universally, like in the upper 90 percentile, they were showing signs of childhood malnutrition, a lack of protein specifically as children. And that's the issue. Once we started providing food stamps and cards and whatever we have been SNAP. doing, aid to dependent children and SNAP and whatever we do, to get money to buy food into the hands of people who have young children. It has dramatically cut violent crime in the United States. It has dramatically cut a lot of bad statistics out, but that's the one that probably is the most has the most emotional impact. And it is it is basically mothers previously were working who had dependent children at home and left them at home alone. And if you say, well, why didn't they take them to daycare? Well, you, just haven't priced, you haven't priced daycare today. Because in many cases that I encountered in the past, the price of daycare was higher than what the person was making. So they stopped working. Sure enough, they dropped out of the labor force to take now, care of their children. I'm going to say something interesting. The labor force, if you dig down into this increase in the labor force we've just discovered, because we just hired all these extra people and unemployment still went up. Well, what is that? Well, the labor force is having new people go into it. Well, who is it? Women are outnumbering men as new into the labor force by about a third right now. Coming out of the pandemic, men outnumbered women by a, a, a similar margin. Well, why? Well, because we still have a cultural thing that's that's part of our decision-making everywhere. It, w whether it's correct or not is irrelevant. It's there. And the thought was men are coming back to the workforce and women are staying and taking care of the kids. So this cultural 
phenomena that's part of history is still there. Well, now people are feeling, okay, we're really opening back up. I'm going back to work as well. And we're seeing that. That's where the increase comes from. The places where you're talking about where it's still not happening is still in that area, women at home with small children. And whether that's gender specific or any of the rest, when we look at this demographically, that's an of course moment when you're looking at history. And if we're a good country, then we're helping those young kids become better adults. Uh, and any investment we make to make those young kids as adults, really good members of society, good education, if we invest in their brains, if we invest in the, the, their ability to eat, this, is, this has a good result long-term. It's like building roads. It makes business better long-term. Um, I've looked at this very carefully, and the vast majority of people who are receiving SNAP, you mentioned SNAP, they're yeah. receiving, they have the card, whatever it's called in a various state, where they get they can go to the grocery store and buy food with government benefits. The vast majority of them are in the position where they would vastly prefer not to have the card, but to have the higher benefits. The problem, and there is a problem there and it needs to be addressed, is that once they start making, if they're working and they're getting SNAP and they start making a little more money, suddenly their benefits are cut and they're back to not being able to feed their children. And that does encourage them not to work. And it needs some fine-tuning. And I'm sure, and I have seen abuse of it. But two things I want to throw, I know we're at the end of the hour. Two things I want to throw out there. When I was a kid, we received government food, I, without which I would have gone hungry. When I was a kid, we did too. Right. I was going to say, when I got out of the Army, we had kids. And I, I didn't realize when I got out of the Army, it was in the middle of a recession. Duh. But it was, and I couldn't find a job and I couldn't make enough money to feed my kids. And the government supplied, I was, I was a subject or my family paid for it. And that's it. Go ahead. Yeah. And we're uh, about out of time for this hour. We're, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do talk to people when we're not on the air. It's really weird. I know. Uh, we, we talk to each other more on the air, I think, than any single time off the air. Kind of nice. The two of us get to chat and so on. But if you'd like to talk to us, we've got email addresses in here, and then we've been asking you to join the program. You can email us at jake at tpwc.com and jeff at tpwc.com, Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie. Um, you can talk to us uh, in person if you would like to talk about your portfolio and how that would affect you. We give fiduciary investment advice through the personal wealth coach, and you can reach our Voicemail on the weekend, real live people during the week, locally at 254-947-1111. You can reach that same line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. Presuming you still have one of those lines attached to your house and a little ringer thing on it. Um, those weird ancient technologies. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can read our newsletter going back a long time, see what we were saying before, um, sign up for our newsletter. You can listen to our radio programs going back a long ways there, or you can find our podcasts anywhere you can find podcasts. We got all kinds of bite-sized ones or long ones, whichever ones put you to sleep fastest. If your doctor agrees, it's all good. Uh, the last thing is you can contact us through the contact form or Jake or Jeff at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.